Well, hello everyone. Today, the Day of Atonement is a feast day of God that we probably look forward to least of all the holy days of God, um, just because of physical reasons and fasting, which we never really look forward to. But it is a very important day in God's plan. It represents the day of our final and eternal cleansing. We keep the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, in the beginning of the year, rehearsing the plan of God, showing that Christ has to provide a sacrifice for us at the very beginning, or we have no chance. And then we have seven days of unleavened bread, picturing putting sin out of our lives, something that we picture as a type during that period of time, but something we do year by year, continually, because we are always <clears throat> in sin to one degree or another. But we have the Day of Atonement, and some of the main elements of atonement include the two goats of Leviticus 16. There we find that one is turned loose in the wilderness bearing the guilt for our sins, and one is sacrificed for our sins. There always has to be an atonement for sin, and only through Christ can our sins be forgiven and forgotten forever. So he had to die for our sins because the penalty of sin is death. But he does not bear the guilt for our sins. He is not the one who tempted us and caused us to sin or impinged upon our human nature and led us into sin. That was Satan. So let's go to Leviticus 23 and begin in verse 27. Also on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation to you, and you shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal, and you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. Sin separates us from God. <clears throat> to become at one with him, to become atoned and cleansed, we have to have something done for us. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. So it is a national holy day, but it bears individual responsibility. And we will have judgment upon us if we do not keep it, and keep it in the right way. Verse 30, And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even, showing that God begins to count the day on the evening before. That's the way he counts. <clears throat> now, let's go back to Leviticus 16. Here the story is picked up. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Eternal and died. All right, before we continue here, let's go back to Leviticus 10, because that is the account of what happened to those two sons of Aaron. Leviticus 10, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Eternal, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Eternal, and devoured them, and they died before the Eternal. God wants us to do things exactly as he says. He wants us to perform. 
according to his word and live by every word of God. He doesn't want us moving days around. He doesn't want us changing our behavior and saying, well, this is okay, I think, because it doesn't seem bad to me or whatever. We have to live by every word of God. <clears throat> then Moses said to Aaron, verse 3, This is that the Lord spoke, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. He saw the power of God laid out there, and he didn't utter a word. He accepted God's judgment in that matter because his sons had done something strange that God had not commanded. Notice verse 9. <clears throat> Do not drink wine nor strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Best the ministry does not have a drink before they go on the, in the pulpit. Now notice, verse 10, <clears throat> that you may put difference between holy and unholy and between, between unclean and clean. The same instruction he gives Zerubbabel and Joshua and Haggai too and the rest of the elders. We are to make a difference between the holy and unholy. And that's what a great deal of this day is about. Now in chapter 16, he refers to this situation and told Aaron, before he came before God, verse 4, he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. The type, of course, for us is baptism, um, and we have to be cleansed by the washing of our sins away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we also have to continue to put those sins out, <clears throat> going through that every day as a living sacrifice. Then he talks about these two goats, the Azazel. Mr. Armstrong explained that over and over, that uh, one represented Satan and one represented Christ. The one that died represented Christ, giving us that cleansing. Another major element of atonement includes fasting to afflict our soul, getting us in line with his purposes, not our own. Isaiah 58 goes through, and we usually read it, it seems, on the Day of Atonement, and questions our motives in our fasting. Are we just trying to get something from God, or are we trying to rid ourselves of sin and go forth, having been cleansed, atoned for, having afflicted our souls and made ourselves presentable for, before God for his purposes and not our own. That's a very important element of Isaiah 58, to do it for God's purposes, to be like him, to think like him, to become at one with him. And coming close to God and being at one with him means we are separated from this world. The word holy does not just mean righteous or pious. Part of the connotation is separateness. For example, God separated himself from us. Christ today has difficulty looking at us and has temporarily turned his face from us because we are not separated enough from this world and Satan. Notice this in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 and verse 5. He's speaking to the church. For your maker is your husband, 
The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Now, how do we know this is not speaking to all of Israel, but to the church? Because God divorced physical Israel, and he is preparing to marry the church, the bride, the 144,000, the first fruits. And Paul spoke of the church as the first fruits. So in this prophecy of Isaiah for the end time, when he addresses us in context with our coming husband, he's referring to the church. God is not going to marry all Israel. He's only going to marry 144,000 first fruits. These are the bride, as Revelation 21 clearly says. So <coughs> he is addressing the church here. Verse 6, For the Lord has called you as a woman forsaken, and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when you were refused, says your God. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. So right now, as we observe this day, Christ has turned his face from the church, and the church is being scattered to all the winds <clears throat> because the bride is not what she should be. She is not separate from this world. She is not keeping herself clean for her coming husband. And that is one of the main things that Christ is trying to show the church right now, is that we must separate and have him entirely in our thoughts, in our consciousness, our goals, our purposes in life have to be in accord with his goals and purposes for us to prepare us as a bride of Jesus Christ. Let's see a little more what he expects of us. I want to go back to Revelation 18.4. Revelation 18. We probably know this one by heart, but it doesn't hurt to review it today because it's a day that means not only holy in terms of conduct, but also separate. Revelation 18 and verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. So God wants us to do something. Her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities, and he is going to reward her for this. She says she sits as a queen, and she will not be punished but her plagues will come, verse 8, in one day, death and mourning and famine. A very short period of time. It talks about one hour in verse 10 that the system that the merchants of the earth come to will be destroyed. And I think we'll see a little later on that this is referring partly to uh, and maybe even almost entirely to the United States because we are the ones the merchants have come to. The merchants will then go to Babylon the Great, another type of fulfillment or of the, the beast and the false prophet as a financial institution, and they'll be able to trade, and uh, they'll be happy, the times of the Gentiles. But right now, we're living in Babylon ourselves, and God says to come out and be separate. Let's pick this up a little bit in Jeremiah 50. Jeremiah 50. Find it here. Okay, the, the word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. 
Now, if you'll notice back up in verse 39 of chapter 49, it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam. So this whole context through here is talking about the latter days, as we know the prophets are certainly prophecies for now. Verse 2 of 50, Declare you among the nations, and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken. For out of the north there comes up a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart, both man and beast. So there's a judgment of Babylon that is being addressed here. But it is tied together with Israel. Notice, verse 4, In those days and in that time, says the Eternal, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Eternal their God. So this is a judgment on Babylon, but it talks about the people of Israel coming. So how do we reconcile this? Well, Israel originally was taken captive into Babylon. And where do we find the church today? We find most of the church in the United States uh, and Canada, Britain, and so on, but the great vast majority of the church was in the United States, which was given to the people of Israel. I'm not uh, saying anything against that, because I do believe we're the people of Israel, or at least one of the tribes of Israel, and perhaps many of the tribes are mixed in here as well as people have come in. But... Babylon was north of Israel, and the Jews were taken there and taken captive there. We find uh, the context of Zechariah 1, the end-time context of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, and 70 years of a captivity that is ending. The only parallel I see is the church of God itself, which has been in the captivity and the grip of a Babylonian system right here in the United States. Of course, the Babylonian system goes around the world. Uh, the, the gods, the sun gods, and their various forms uh, of Babylon are all over the earth. So the whole earth is a system of Babylon, but who is the leader of the earth today? I think we'll see in the context as we go on that the United States perhaps is the leader, <clears throat> at least of this present system, and the Gentiles do not like our leadership, and day by day they hate us more and more, and they will destroy us according to Scripture. Verse 5, people of Israel and Judah, and we're referring to the church here, basically. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come, and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. So let's look upon this as an end-time context and the destruction of this system that we see around us. Where is the church? Verse 6. My people has been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. Echoing Malachi 1, uh, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. We were a large church at one time a large government. Now we are a bunch of small churches. We've gone from mountain to hill, so to speak. All that found them have devoured them, and their adversaries said, We offend not, because they've sinned against the eternal, the habitation of justice, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. We can take advantage of them. They've sinned. God's mad at them. And all the shepherds, the people, the organizations basically devoured the sheep. 
misusing, abusing them, taking their money and saying, pray, pay, and stay, but you don't count for much. This has been the general way the people of God's church have been treated. Verse 8, Remove out of the midst of Babylon, and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as the he-goats before the flocks. The goats could cause the sheep to move. Goats are not looked upon with great favor throughout most of the Bible, but there is a time for a goat to, to rise up and to remove from the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the middle of this system that we're in. Um, Ezekiel 17.16 might be an interesting tie-in here. If you remember the parable and the riddle of Ezekiel 17, I went through it in the Minor Prophets at some point, but I think it's talking about Herbert Armstrong and Joe Koch being two eagles, and they both died in the midst of Babylon. Where did they die? Los Angeles. So this whole country may represent Babylon to a great degree, but the midst of Babylon, as I see it, is probably New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, our big cities where this world system has more influence than anywhere else. So we're to come forth out of the midst of this degradation and sin. Verse 9, For lo, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. Whether this is the UN or an assembly of nations under Germany and Europe, or exactly how this will work out uh, remains to be seen. But it's going to be a bunch of great nations from the north, which represented Assyria in, in ancient times and ancient geography. So this represents a, great a group of nations from the north coming against Babylon. Well, Babylon in the ancient times was north of Jerusalem and, and in that sense was referred to uh, as Babylon. But here you have the nations of the north, the leaders coming from the north, a great assembly of nations who are to destroy Babylon, and we find the church in the middle of this system of Babylon. Uh, the, the, well, Washington, D.C. itself is not part of the United States. It's a Babylonian-type system. It was set up by people, designed by people, and laid out by people with pagan thought. And what is there does not represent God and his rule and the kind of government he would have. <clears throat> All right, let's go down uh, verse 17. Israel is a scattered sheep, and the lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria has devoured him, and last this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has broken his bones. So there may be some types there of those who destroyed the church, for that matter. But God says in verse 20, the last part, I will pardon them whom I reserve. Now let's go down to verse 22, hearkening back to him saying a great assembly of nations will come against Babylon. Uh, verse 22, a sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? How has Babylon become a desolation among the nations? Well, who do we read about that's going to be destroyed? The United States and Israel as a whole, the nations of Israel. Ask this question. Who is the hammer of the whole earth in these end-time days? Is it Spain? Is it Ethiopia? Is it China? Who is the hammer of the whole earth? Is it Germany today? Is it what? I think the only answer you can come up with really is the United States because we are the only superpower left who have power to hammer the whole earth. And if we don't like what's going on in uh, 
Iraq or in Eastern Europe or wherever, we send our planes and we hammer on whatever nation we think needs hammered on. Whether it's Somalia, you name it. Uh, if we don't like it, we go in and hammer away. So we are the hammer of the whole earth. I have laid a snare for you, and you also are taken, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You were found and also caught, because you have striven against the eternal. And it's talking about the time the church leaves. Verse 28, The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. What is his temple? It's his church. It's his people. Paul called it that quite frequently, that we are the temple of God. So God is going to bring his people out. They are going to flee and escape out of the land of Babylon. And we're talking here not about just spiritual division and separateness from this world and thinking good thoughts. We're talking about a physical separation because this country is going to be destroyed. And Israel, having taken on the characteristics of Babylon and accepted a Babylonian government, uh, is going to bring punishment upon us. Then it talks about the sword and wild beasts and so on. Now verse 41. Behold, the people shall come from the north, and a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. And they will hold the bow and the lance, or the, the war uh, weapons. And they will come against you, O daughter of Babylon, it says. The king of Babylon, verse 43, has heard the report of them, and his hands waxed feeble. Anguish took hold of him, and pangs as of a woman in travail. So there's going to come a time when this country is fearful of what is coming. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the swelling of Jordan to the habitation of the strong, but I will make them suddenly run away from her. Who? And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her, for who is like me? God's talking about his church here. There's no one qualified. There's no one like God whom he can appoint over her. He's not going to appoint anyone over Babylon. He's going to destroy it. He's not going to appoint anyone in that sense over Assyria and the combine of nations who come against us. It is his people. And who will appoint me the time, and who is that shepherd that will stand before me? So you see, it's talking about a shepherd over his people. Therefore hear you the counsel of the Eternal, that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes, that he has purposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. So someone is going to draw God's flock out, and it's not going to be anybody of great stature, it doesn't appear. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth is moved, and the cry is heard among the nations. So it's going to be a great fall. Verse 51, or chapter 51, I mean, Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon, and against them that dwell in the midst of them that rise, rise up against me, a destroying wind. And it talks about a day of trouble. Now, down to verse 6. Flee out of the midst of Babylon, and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. What country influences this world more than any other? We have made the whole world drink of Hollywood, to drink of our way of doing things. We forced our form of government on many, many people. We have made the earth drunk. 
Verse 8, Babylon has suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her. Verse 9, we would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her and let us go everyone into his own country. Not somebody else's country, his own country. Very possibly a place of safety may be right here because this is our own country. For her judgment reaches up into heaven and is lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought forth our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. So he's talking about God's people here in the midst of the destruction of Babylon. Well, ancient Babylon is, doesn't even exist today. Uh, Saddam Hussein's trying to rebuild a little something over there on the original site, but it's not talking about that. That Babylon is not the hammer of the whole earth, and neither is Saddam Hussein. He's one who gets hammered on. So it's talking about his people, God's people, declaring in Zion the work of the Lord our God. What is the work of the Lord our God at the end? It's building the latter temple. Not necessarily warning the world at this point, but preparing the bride. Verse 12, set up the standard upon the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes, for the Lord has both devised and done that which he spoke against it, the inhabitants of Babylon. O you that dwell upon many waters, abundant in treasures, your end is come. Now, who is abundant in treasures today? Who is the richest nation on earth? Who dwells upon many waters? Long coastlines, uh, great lakes, great rivers. Uh, I believe that that's talking about the United States. Verse 33, For thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon, is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her. We represent the most evil, corrupted society in that sense on earth. We're the ones who export sin and violence. Verse 35, The violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon, shall the inhabitant of Zion say, and my blood upon the inhabitants of Chaldea shall Jerusalem say. All right, let's go on down now. Verse 45, My people, go you out of the midst of her, and deliver you every man of his soul from the fierce anger of the Eternal. Now, where are his people? Most of his people, as I said, are in the United States. Well, if we're in the midst of Babylon, we're the ones that have to flee. We're the ones that have to get out of the middle of, of all this. Verse 46, Unless your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land... A rumor shall both come one year, and after that in another year shall come a ruler and violence in the land. Ruler against ruler. Violence in the land where God's people are. Where are God's people again? Right here, most of them. Verse 50, You that have escaped the sword, go away, stand not still. Remember the eternal far off, and let Jerusalem come into your mind. We are confounded, because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces. For strangers are come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. That's the condition of the church today. Strangers, unconverted, those who said they were Jews and were not, have come in and taken over the rule of God's church. Now, we have to get out of the middle of what is going on in this world, and we will escape by the skin of our teeth somehow if we heed what God is telling us here. Let's notice this back in Isaiah 52. I think I mentioned it in the trumpet sermon, but it uh, is a good tie-in here with the matter of the Day of Atonement and coming out and being clean. Verse 11, 
Depart you, depart you, Isaiah 52:11. Go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go you out of the midst of her, which we just read in Jeremiah 50. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the eternal will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So God is going to protect his people if they are willing to separate themselves from this world and its ways and we're talking about a physical separation here because we are never told to come slowly or not hastily out of sin. We are always to get away from sin as soon as possible. So we're talking here about, yes, certainly, cleansing our minds and making a difference between unholy thoughts and holy thoughts. But we're also talking about separating ourselves entirely from this world and its ways in the middle of the Babylonian system we live in right here in this country. South Africa, other places also are influenced by Babylon. But if I go to South Africa and I flip on the television in the hotel, whose programs do I see? I see sin being put on that tube by Americans, by Hollywood. And anywhere you go on earth, that is what you find. Now, on the Feast of Trumpets, we left off in uh, Ezra 6. And I'd like to go back there now. Ezra 6. We've read several scriptures about separating ourselves, both spiritually and physically, from this world. Uh, at the end of chapter 6, they kept the Passover after they had dedicated the temple and it was finished. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, verse 21, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the eternal of God of Israel, did eat and kept unleavened bread. So they were putting sin out of their lives. Now let's continue on in chapter 7. After these things, and apparently about 50 years later, means quite a bit later after these things, uh, Ezra came from Babylon himself. Zerubbabel and Joshua had built the temple with the people, and then Ezra came later. Verse 6, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the eternal his God upon him. So Ezra left Babylon, studied the word of God, and followed it as it came from Moses. Notice verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the eternal and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. We do not automatically keep God's ways. And after the temple was built, apparently Israel had begun to drift. They had begun to be what we would call today Laodicea, not full of zeal, not full of energy for God and his ways. Ezra came on the scene and found that things were not right and something needed to be done. Now, we saw in the first chapters of Ezra that they started out by keeping, as when they got there, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles and getting things right so the Feast of Trumpets was part and parcel with what they were accomplishing, and we covered that on the Feast of Trumpets. But now we have Ezra coming in and seeing that things are not right. 
that the holy and the unholy are not being separated. The clean and the unclean are not being separated. And he felt something had to be done. So I think that ties in very well with the Day of Atonement because we keep the Feast of Trumpets picturing our change, but everything is not completely right until the Day of Atonement when Satan is put away completely and we are made totally at one with God through a change which is eternal. There will never more be any sin in us after that ultimate change and that final uh, at one moment made with God right at the time of trumpets followed by atonement. When we are made holy and separate and completely different from this world and from Satan. And the type is here of Ezra coming in and seeing that even though they had made steps to do what was right and had built the temple, yet everything was not completely right yet. And he chose to set it right. There's several references to fasting in here, so I thought it would be good to just continue where we left off and see how this ties in with atonement in that sense of separating ourselves, of being what God wants us to be. And that was Ezra's mindset when he came from Babylon to God's people. Uh, verse 11. Now this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, even the scribe of the words of the commandments of the eternal and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and at such a time. I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with you. Volunteers are called. Anyone who wishes can go. Now, of God's people today, those he's called out, we can set our heart as Ezra did, to seek God and to do it and follow his statutes and judgments, or we can go ahead and drift on along and think, well, we must be okay. We're not overtly sinning. Verse 14, For as much as you are sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand, and to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem. And all the silver and gold that you can find in all the province of Babylon, with the free will offering of the people, uh, are to be taken there. Who are the gold and the silver? God's people. And all of those who will freely offer themselves will be taken and be a part of the temple and what God is doing. Uh, let's see. The point I wanted to make is once the temple is built, this is later with Ezra, is there an opportunity for some to come who were not there for the original establishment of the temple? Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, as you may recall from the last sermon, came up at separate times. So it didn't happen all at once but it happened over a period of time. So God may build his temple, put it together with a small group, and others may come later. The setting of Ezra 7 is after the temple is built, as we see there in verse 15, or 16, excuse me. Verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So it may be that some come later to beautify the house that is already built. 
So the emphasis of Ezra was not the building of the temple itself. It had already been done, and people were drifting. But his approach was the institution of righteous practice to cause God's people to become at one with God, to separate the unclean from the clean. Now notice verse, uh, let's see, where am I? I want to be in chapter 8 now. Uh, beginning in the first first part of chapter 8. These are now the chief of their fathers. This is the genealogy of, of them that went up from Babylon. So he lists the people that came up. Verse 21 then. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahaba that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. So... The whole idea was to get close to God. They were coming out of Babylon, a group of people with Ezra, and he wanted to be sure that they were following the right way. And that is something that should be foremost and forefront in our minds. And this day of atonement, we afflict ourselves and we seek a right way. We seek to want God's way, not our own way. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. In other words, they were in a very dangerous situation, going from Babylon clear down to Jerusalem. There were many people who hated them. There were thieves. There were robbers. Uh, there were mercenaries around who would kill and, and uh, steal, and they had a lot of gold and silver with them. So they were in great jeopardy, but they didn't want to ask the king to provide armed soldiers to guard them because they were going to serve God. But when God's own people flee for their very lives, it will not be with swords and guns. It's going to be God protecting, as per Revelation 12. But we need to fast and pray and ask God that he will protect us. He tells us, be of good courage, fear not, over and over. But they wanted that kind of faith. They longed for the faith of old when God protected the entire nation from its enemies, like coming out of Egypt. And we're headed for the same protection. Zechariah 2 tells us that God will be, or Christ will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a church. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, the latter temple. And the two witnesses ultimately will have immunity from all the world can throw at them until it's time for them to die, and then they will die. But we have to trust God with this kind of faith that he is going to see us through this end time. And the, the uh, pattern is laid out for us here in the book of Ezra about how we should trust God and not ourselves. Do we need this kind of faith, brethren? Do we need it for healing, for protection, for oneness with God? Verse 28, And I said to them, You are holy to the eternal. The vessels are holy also. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of our fathers. And we are to bring ourselves as living sacrifices, holy before God. Separate from this world, from this world's way of thinking. 
Hebrews 7.26. Let's go back to that one here for a moment. Hebrews 7.26. Here he says, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. The word here for separate is chorizo in the Greek, to place room between, part, to go away, depart, put asunder, to make separate. He separated himself from the ways of this world. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, and here I want verse 17. Wherefore come out from among them, and be you separate, says the Eternal, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So God tells us to come out. The, the Greek word here is aphorizo, and the definition is set off by boundary, exclude, limit. So we are to be separate, excluded. Our boundaries are to be different than this world's boundaries. So now go back to Ezra 8 and verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. So just before Passover, they left Babylon to go to Jerusalem, and God did protect them. He did honor their fast. And they came on into Jerusalem then. Now let's go to chapter 9. We'll find that some things were not right yet. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. And names some of the Gentiles that they were following. Verse 2, For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers has been chief in this trespass. Now look at the church today. Now on a spiritual level, we have mingled ourselves with the women, the churches of this world. The Tkachas brought back in all those defiled harlot women, the Protestants, and mingle that doctrine with us. Now, we have to get rid of that. We have to get away away from the thinking of this world. And it has more effect on us than we sometimes like to think. Verse 3, And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair off my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Are we that zealous when we find sin in ourselves, sin in our organizations? Or do we sort of say, oh, well, I guess it's okay. Or, well, we'll get around to that. Now think about this. This man tore his clothes and he plucked the hair out of his head. And he pulled the hair out of his beard. He was so upset when he learned that Israel was not separated enough from this world, that they had mingled with this world. Do we get that upset over the sin we find in ourselves? Verse 4, Then were assembled to me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. 
because of the transgression of those that had been carried away, and I sat astonished till the evening sacrifice. He sat dumbfounded over this thing. Some people saw what was going on, and everyone that trembled at the word of God came to Ezra. A lot of people probably ignored him and thought, oh, what's that idiot doing? But some people trembled at the word of God. Are you one of those? Am I one of those? Verse 6, these people came and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you, my God. For This is Ezra's prayer. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass has grown up into the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass to this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face, as it is this day. It just hit him. They were just coming out of the captivity for sin, and yet they were still full of sin. And even as we come out after 70 years in the midst of this country as a church, we still find that there's a great deal of sin in us. We were, yes, as Worldwide Church of God. God's called out. God's holy church. God's people. Those that he had assembled out of this world and called. But then we find that we are full of Laodiceanism. We are still full of sin. We have not made ourselves separate enough from this world as yet. And now for a little space, verse 8, grace has been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. There again you have Haggai and Zechariah, a remnant of God's people will escape. And to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. So God is going to give his remnant a place, a safe place on the wall to hang is what the nail uh, symbolizes. A sure abode, a constant, uh, secure place. A little reviving. For we were bondmen in bondage to this world. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our bondage, but has extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving to set up... So the pattern is set here, as in Haggai and Zechariah, that God is going to bring his remnant out and revive it, that remnant, including us, I hope. Verse 10, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. How can we defend ourselves? For we've not obeyed God in heart and mind the way we should. We've not become separate and totally at one with him the way we should be. Christ and his bride need to be one. They need to be of the same mind. They become one flesh in that sense, one spirit, once they are resurrected. Verse 11, which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land unto which you go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore, give not your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters to your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever. Don't go their way, don't do their thing, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. 
God gave us this land, and God called his church mostly in this land of the United States. But have we followed God's way or gone the way of this world? And when God found us and began to call us out, were we part and parcel with this world or were we not? Verse 13, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this, his latter temple is going to sing for joy because God is going to deliver. Verse 14, Should we again break your commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Would not you be angry with us till you had consumed us? so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before you because of this. Isaiah 54 again, I think it's, yeah, verses 7 and 8, where he said he turned his face from us. Because we're so sinful, he can't stand to look at us. Verse chapter 10, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping, and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled to him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. So they paid attention to the leadership that Ezra was giving. They saw that they had not been living up to what God wanted, and they were very, very concerned about it. Some got the message and came to do what was necessary. Others did not. So Ezra's repentance and humility and example before the people produced unity and a willingness to obey God. Verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. They took this pretty seriously. They were willing to give up their wives and their children to obey God. Now, will all the splinter sisters be dissolved and their offspring? We married other women. We married other churches. And we have to put them away. We have to come weeping and ready to serve God if we're going to become a part of his remnant that he puts back together. Verse 4, Arise, for this matter belongs to you. We also will be with you. Be of good courage and do it. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Verse 6, Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he did, not eat, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. And I think this is a good time on Day of Atonement to consider these scriptures as we fast to mourn for the transgression that has carried away God's people that have caused us to be separated and scattered. And they made proclamations throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together to Jerusalem and that whosoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the princes and all the elders, all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that have been carried away. I wonder what the pattern will be here at the end. 
well, we have a short time to respond. In that particular case, physical Israel had three days to respond, and that was it. And more fasting. Now, verse 9, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together to Jerusalem within three days. They met the uh, deadline. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. So this began to occur at the time of the uh, rains of the ninth month, as they began. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the eternal your God, the God of your fathers, and do his pleasure, and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. That was God's pleasure that they separate their families and from their children. Pretty strong. What are we willing to do for God? What are we willing to do to obey God? If it's necessary, are we willing to separate from husbands and wives, even from our children? Because that's what God said would happen. If we obey Him, Christ said there in Matthew, that it would separate fathers and mothers and brothers and children and, and families. And also, on a spiritual level, in another sense, we have to separate from the ways of this world, the churches of this world, and perhaps even from churches of God, because they are not willing to follow zealously the ways of God. They're willing to compromise on some issues and not think that they're important when God says every word is to be lived by and all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As you have said, so must we do. We accept this. But the people are many, and it is a time of much rain. And we are not able to stand without, neither is this a work of one day or two. You don't get this total separation done that quickly. It takes time. Verse 14, Let now our rulers of all the congregation stand, and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times, and with them the elders of every city, and the judges thereof, until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. God was very displeased with them intermarrying and mixing with the peoples of the land. And this had to be taken care of. Now, it's, it's interesting that it is a time of much rain, and the latter, the, the rain's beginning to come, and uh, it took them quite some time to do this, a matter of, I think it was three months, yeah, Verse 17, And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. So this is all through the rainy season. The rainy seasons are beginning to come to an end uh, toward Passover time. So from the time the rain started until the rains were beginning to end uh, in, in the spring, they went through this process of people coming in, making appointments, and determining whether they were their wives and their children really should be a part of Israel or not. So there is a time to come under the rod. There is a time to have the plumb line set up, and we will be judged to whether we are converted and are part of the first fruits or not. Uh, verse 16, in the middle of it, and all of them by their names were separated and sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter, and they finished it then. Verse 18, And among the sons of the priests there were found that had taken strange wives, namely the sons of Joshua, the son of Josedach, and so on. Verse 19, And they gave their hands that they would put away their wives, 
And being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespasses. So starting with the ministry, we have to put all strange thoughts, all strange ways away. Separate the clean from the unclean and become at one with God. So by the first day of the first month, they were done, taking three months. Now, I want to tie some scriptures in here, because God is going to begin to rain his blessings upon his people again once we repent, once we get ourselves in the right attitude, and even indicates the time of the year that this may begin to occur. Joel uh, 2 and verse 21, I want. Now, this is the end-time setting. This is talking about God's people right at the end, the time of the day of the Lord. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately. So as God begins to draw his people back together, he's going to begin by giving them rain, that is blessing, moderately. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. So around Passover time, apparently, some year, uh, both the former and the latter rain will come together at once. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord come, verse 31. So God is going to begin this restoration. He talks about uh, men of signs and wonders there with Joshua and Zechariah 3. So God is going to bring this, verse 32, And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. For God is going to call a remnant together. We've seen that in many, many scriptures. Now let's go to Zechariah 10. Zechariah 10 and verse 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, same as in Joel 2. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. And it's not speaking of the millennium yet. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way. And as a flock they were troubled, because there was no shepherd. So we're talking about the time now when there's no shepherd. And we're to be asking for the latter rain. Because God says he's going to send it. Ezekiel 34 now. Here is the scripture that we've used over and over, and I think all the churches basically have, uh, to show that God is not happy with the shepherds in this day and age. Uh, the shepherds of God's people today. But notice verse 25 of Ezekiel 34. And I will make with them a covenant of peace. This is after the flock has been devoured by the ministry. 
and will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessings. So right after God's people are torn apart by the ministry, God says that he's going to set a shepherd over them in verse 23, and then he's going to give them showers of blessings. So once we get serious about separating ourselves, God will send great rain upon us, great showers of blessings. And they were separated here in Ezra during the rainy season, symbolic of returning blessings for obedience. Now let's go back to Ezra again. I think I'm about finished up there. Ezra 10, uh, verse 19 is where we left off. They gave their hands. They shook on this. They made a deal that they would put away their strange wives and even their children. Verse 44, he had mentioned a bunch of names here, here, and then he says, All these had taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. This is pretty serious business. These people were willing to give up their wives and their children for the sake of obedience to God. How far will we go? Are we bond slaves of Christ or are we not? Now let's go back to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. We were here earlier in a different section, but I want to begin in verse 1. Isaiah 52 and verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise, sit down, get up on, from being flat and sit up. O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So God tells us to put on our holy garments. This is the key. And this is very much what the Day of Atonement is about, is preparing ourselves for that final eternal change, that final cleansing from all that is wrong with us. Because Paul, after living as a Christian for many, many years, called himself, O oh, wretched man that I am. And as long as we are in this human state, we are still going to have human nature. We are still going to have wrong thoughts. Try as we might, we can't seem to get rid of all of it. And the Day of Atonement pictures that time just following the Feast of Trumpets, when our change come, that we are finally made at one, totally, completely, of every mind, every thought, every emotion, being the mind, emotion, and thought of God, forevermore. And that is what atonement pictures, complete separation from Satan and his influences, from this world, and to be a bride of Christ. That is what we are shooting for. That's what the latter temper is all, temple is all about. It must far outshine in glory the former temple, our previous affiliation worldwide. We must both, as a body and as individuals, progress beyond what we were. Now someone will probably ask, does this mean that many from worldwide who have died over the decades will not be in the kingdom of God? No. There was sin there. Isaiah 43:27 indicates that. So that said our. Uh, well, let's go back there. We're, we're not far from it. Isaiah 43. 
Verse 27, Your first father has sinned, and your teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. So there was sin in worldwide, and Mr. Armstrong even made mistakes. People don't like to hear that, but he did. He admitted it. And Laodicean and sin, Laodiceanism and sin were there. But I don't think the loss of eternal life was there. It's just that God is sifting and sorting and waking up Laodiceans and tells us to get oil, and we are to go beyond what we used to be. Now, this restoration we talked about, about the rains coming, is mentioned here in Isaiah 43. Let's begin in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord God that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. Remember, they fasted for protection from God. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. We're going to have the same type of thing that happened with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you, for I am the eternal your God, the Holy One of Israel. Verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. He's going to bring his remnant together. I will say to the north, Give up. To the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even everyone that is called by my name. Now, are the peoples of this world called by his name? No, we are the church of God. This is whom he's addressing here. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. God calls them together. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. Let all these people in this world come and Bring their witnesses as to who they are and what their authority is. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, hearkening back to those who are called by his name, says the Eternal, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved. And I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, that I am God. So his latter temple, the people that form it, are going to be God's witnesses that he is God. He will deliver them. I say them, I hope us, I hope we're included. Yea, before the day was I am he. Before the day was I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. So the world is going to persecute us, but God is going to bring Babylon down. And we have to escape from Babylon, as we saw in Jeremiah 50 and 51. Verse 19, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, that ye sh shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So God is taking us to a wilderness area, and he's going to make rivers there. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Who are his chosen? The church. Many are called, few are chosen. 
This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. So we are to be God's witnesses at the end. We are the only witnesses he has on this earth as his people, his church. But he is God because everyone else is denying God. So it's not just two witnesses, brethren. We, as individuals, will form that last witness. And that witness has to be the very best witness possible. We must be the kind of witness, trusting in God, obeying God, setting the example, living by faith, loving as brothers, so the two witnesses can point to us as a model of what the world should be doing, but refuse to partake of and be a part of. We must be holy, clean, atoned for. We must make a difference between the clean and the unclean, as Haggai 2 tells us. For God is going to do this. And he may already be starting. You and I are invited to be a part of the latter temple if we will respond, yield, obey, and become holy and separate. That is our goal, that is our purpose, to separate from this world and to be just like God. And when the day of atonement is finally fulfilled, we will be totally at one with God forevermore. And never a negative thought, never a rebellious thought, never a thought that goes stray from following the ways of God and the peace and the happiness and the love that he is. We will become that. So we rehearse this day every year, looking forward to the time when we are totally at one with God. All our sins are atoned, they are washed away, they are forgiven, and we will never, ever sin again. What a wonderful time to look forward to, and how important is the Day of Atonement. We may not look forward to the fasting. We may not look forward to the overcoming and putting sin away from us as we fast. But we are to spring forth and be the repairers of the breach, as Isaiah 58 says. Once we get cleansed, we can then go and help clean the rest of this world and make them at one with God.